We gotta go to the bullpen. Welcome to the Highland Bullpen, the all-new podcast bringing America's pastime to Scotland shores. It doesn't matter if you're a Hall of Famer heading for Cooperstown or you're fresh out of the minor leagues, this is the podcast for you. Hello listeners and a warm welcome to the Highland Bullpen Sports Podcast. I'm your host Richard and along with my fellow Bullpen bros, Dave Jr, Alan and Yorkshire Dave, we'll be taking a look this week at the greatest Scotland international football matches of the past 50 years. We'll be talking about our first experiences of going to follow Scotland at Hamden, looking back on some classic old enemy encounters with a perspective from both sides of the Scotland-England split, and we'll be looking at the triumphs and tragedy of Scotland's World Cup campaigns. We'll be talking about dark blue legends including Kenny Dalgleish, Jock Steen and Davy Cooper. And Dave Jr. will share some stories from his days as a Tartan Army foot soldier. So without any further ado, let's kick off with part one of the most memorable Scotland games of the past 50 years. Important Scotland games for me are, are memorable. Um, it's, it's quite hard to take away from you know your first time. Everybody has that first time for their club or country or a special occasion. So my, my very first first uh, was going to the Scotland-Russia game and it was a European Championships qualifier for Euro 96, which uh, in itself, I think you could talk about all day. There were so many different things happened to Scotland in that tournament. Uh, but for me, that was the, the kind of build-up, November 1994. Um, but that was my first game and, and my friend, his dad managed to get two tickets and I'm pretty sure that his dad just couldn't really stomach him all, all alone <laughs> for the game. So he thought, right, bring a friend. Um, so me and me and my best pal at the time, Chappie, so Officer Chapman, if he's if he's listening at all, we went along. Um, just you know, at the time we we're both fourteen. I think I, I might have been along to Ibrox once or twice before then, but it was definitely one of my first visits to a, a big big stadium. Uh, it's quite something. So um, though that was really quite special. Just coming up the stairway, finding your way to this seat when you, you in the years prior. My best experiences may have been at Anfield for Stirling Albion or, or Fourth Bank for Stirling Albion. Um, but that, you know, coming out and seeing quite a, a hell of a stadium, I know that it's changed over the years. I try to delve back into my memory at that point. You may have had the old stand there uh, with the old coloured seating as well. Could that be right? You might have had yellow and red. I'm pretty sure the renovation of, of the, the South Stand took place maybe towards the late 90s. But that was... Um, you know, that was quite something to come out to. <laughs> One each. Russia, I can't even remember at that point. I'm pretty sure there would have been a, a handy team. Um, but you're always looking back. And, you know, Russia, even now, I don't think they've been any different from then. A good, strong, technical team, uh, you know, compact together. So I remember coming away thinking that was great. You know, One each. Um, Scott Booth. I can't even remember the goal, if I'm being honest. I might need to check that one out on YouTube, but... Um, yeah, that was that was my first visit to Hamden, so my first Scotland game. Uh, and again, you can definitely say got the bug since then. I'm not sure. Uh, we, we've mentioned an app before, Footballogy. 
on the on the program on the show. I'm not sure if you can see how many times you've seen a particular club or country. Alan could be better suited to give us an answer there, but um, yeah, that was my first game, and it definitely set me in the road. You know, I'd watched Scotland games for years with my with my dad, my brother, and my mum, but that was my first time actually setting foot in the stadium. Famous winger playing for Russia that night as well, I believe, Dave. Andre. Andre Konchelskis, yeah. Okay, I didn't realise that. And Rangers, yeah. Dave Junior, and I remember that one for very different reasons. November 1994 was when I started my working life as a journalist. I started with DC Thompson, literally just a couple of weeks beforehand at the start of November. So two weeks into my job, the, the sports editor there, a kind chap, said, oh, listen, why don't you go along to the Scotland game at Hamden? So that was me two weeks into life as a, as a, a sports journalist at that point. And I got to got to go to that game. And I remember it particularly because there was quite a lot of big characters among the sports writing fraternity of that era as well. And it was quite of a quite an intimidating place. I mean, good, good people, but certainly strong and characters of strong opinions. An 18-year-old as I was then, it was quite a quite a baptism to go along to that. But it was uh, guys like Ken Gallagher, Jim Roger, and people like that, stalwarts of the the, the Jim Trainer would have been there as well, of that kind of era of, of football reporting. But what I always remember is just what a long trek it was up to the press box at Hamden. The old press box looked like a kind of, I don't know how to describe it, it as a rabbit hutch that had been dropped on to the main stand roof at Hamden. It was. It felt very like, you know, if you go in an old kind of pavilion, I think Yorkshire Dave might get the cricket pavilion, if you can imagine a cricket pavilion at kind of a an old traditional ground, with that kind yeah. of, you know, the old kind of windows and the old kind of all that kind of feel to it. Yeah, I love a, I love any ground that's got a house in it or a pavilion or anything like that. And that was one gravity defying, wasn't it? Perched on the top. Oh, absolutely. And, and it looked, and it was probably wasn't. It was probably because obviously the roof was angled, but you literally did feel like you were looming out over, and you can imagine the view was absolutely sensational in terms of seeing the game. Wasn't quite so easy to see which particular player was which it was a bit like yeah. watching Subutio, but it was an incredible atmosphere. But sadly the press box didn't have much longer left. I think it might have been the equivalent of condemned not long afterwards. Because I also remember, and I'm all right with heights, but looking down and there was a gap, I'd say it was about the size of a saucer, at least one, maybe a couple. And it was literally just a hole in the floor. And you could yeah, look I couldn't handle that rich. I really and you could, yeah, I can you, remember going there a couple of times myself thinking Oh, I could never make it up there. Oh, and you, I mean, I was obviously fitter then, but once you were up there, it was great. But yeah, just looking at that, because you could see how tiny the heads were below you in the main stand bit, but it was a fascinating. I think it was quite a good game. I think one each was a fair result. And I think, Dave Jr., that Scott Booth might have rounded the goalkeeper from memory. I seem to remember, that's how I remember, probably go and find it was a header from 20 yards. But in my memory, he went round, he went round the goalkeeper. But it uh, shows you the strengths the Scotland team had then, because I don't think Scott Booth got that many caps. But he was a good player. I think he went on to play in Holland. And yeah. did he go to Germany? I can't remember. But it was a, I think he did. Yeah, but maybe even Dortmund, maybe. I'm trying to remember when, when Booth played, but I think he might, having a look at the squad here, uh, at that point, he was with Aberdeen, and as Alan mentioned, the Russian team um, you know, contained Kinchelskis and one of an early memory of a pretty good goalkeeper. I remember Valerie Carpin. Yeah, 
he was pretty good. But I just have a wee look. I've still got the programme from occasions like that. And that was the first time Scotland had ever came across Russia, uh, given the kind of breakup of the USSR. But that was uh, the first meeting between the countries. And, you know, we've definitely crossed paths uh, a few times over the years. I still remember, again, I'm just looking through. I'm sure you guys have all got something similar. But it wasn't just a ticket I got that day. There was a, a kind of a little envelope and you had a, a little welcome to the stadium. I was in the West Stand. £12 for a ticket, Richard. Well, mm. £12, £12 a bargain. Um, and again, from the programme notes, it looks as if Russia were absolutely the favourites for the group. That might have been seen as a good point at the time. Craig Brown's Scotland team, Dave Jr. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, that was the famous top, uh, which was the kind of tartan home top in the lead up to Euro 96. I know we've, we've all spoken about kind of favourite tops in the past, but that was the real, an actual tartan top. I've got memories which stand out later on. Sadly, I wasn't at that game, but it was the, the Ali McCoist overhead kick uh, to take us through. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was at home against Greece. But that was one of those games, again, in, in typical McCoy's fashion. I think he'd broken his leg against Portugal, maybe in a friendly in 95. And this was one of his comeback games against Greece. So there's definitely some element of it that was a comeback for him. And he just came on the pitch, two minutes and an overhead kick to send us through to the Euros. Um, so again, that was, when you're growing up, you've got McCoy leading the line. That was, that was pretty cool. Dave Junior there sharing his memories of his first Scotland game, a 1-1 draw between Craig Brown, Scotland and Russia. Now, Alan, your first Scotland game, or your, one of your first most memorable Scotland games, goes back just a little bit further than that. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, I'm quite shocked that my, my first game is almost 20 years ahead of Dave Junior's, uh, which was a Scotland-England game in May 1976. So the best part of 20 years. I think you have to have in your top five old enemy games with with England and the old home international championships. They were iconic for a guy of my age and, and no doubt a Yorkshire Dave as well. We were fortunate enough. We we actually, I must have been ten at the time, just coming up for eleven, uh, and we drove down from the Highlands to this game. And for those of you familiar with driving up to to see Ross County or Inverness these days from the Central Belt, the, the journey would have been twice as long. So a, a very long day trip to see that game. Um, I remember before the game, we were in a in a bar in a hotel near the ground and Matt Busby was there. So we got, got Matt Busby's autograph, uh, exciting times for a, a young lad. And then standing in the terracing, I'm fairly sure the terracing on the side of the, the current main stand. So was there terracing in front of the main stand in the old days? Have I got my, my memory right? Like an enclosure or something, Alan? It must have been an enclosure. I guess a traditional enclosure. I'm pretty sure that that's where we were. Um, th- this game is made famous, uh, and you'll get all the clips from it, from Kenny Dalglish putting the ball through Ray Clements' legs uh, in the 50th minute uh, to put Scotland 2-1 up, which was the, the final score. So that it was great to be there, an iconic moment uh, in, in Scottish football. It was great to be there, Scotland-England game. Great to see Scotland win one of those games as well. I remember that incident as well when when Scotland scored. My father jumped up and a quarter bottle fell out of his pocket uh, and smashed. That was interesting at the time, but when you look back now, you think actually we were driving back up to the Highlands after that game as well in that six-hour 
journey. So I'm not quite sure how, how that was going to go. So perhaps smashing wasn't the worst thing that, that happened. Being at a Scotland-England game was, was fantastic. I've been to a few others since then, but fantastic names in there squeezed between the 74 and 78 World Cup. Uh, Alan Raffingoles, uh, a defence, Donaghy for Scythe, Jackson and McGrain. The wee man Archie Gemmell as captain, Eddie Gray, Don Masson, Bruce Reich, uh, and up front, a, a deadly duo there of, of Doug Leash and Joe Jordan. Uh, albeit Don Masson got the first goal, uh, which was an equaliser after Mick Shannon, uh, of the famous accent Mick Shannon, uh, under Don Revy, had put England ahead. Sounds a, a very memorable one, Alan. My first Scotland game also involves Kenny Dalgleish and an iconic moment. That was, uh, although it was my first Scotland game in March of 1986, it was Kenny Dalgleish's 100th when he became the first of a Scotland player to play yep. 100 games for his country. And I think it was March 1986. And Franz Beckenbauer, uh, a legend among football legends, was on hand to present Kenny with a kind of golden cap to symbolise his 100th game and becoming oh, yeah. the, the first to reach that milestone for Scotland as well. And it's funny the things I remember about it because... As a kid, this probably didn't stand out to me, but a number of players who played that game have said since then it was crazy because they were desperate for Ken Elglish to score a goal, not least because it was his 100th game, but he was tied still at that point with Dennis Law as he would finish his career tied with Dennis Law on 30 goals for Scotland. So lots of them who would normally have shot themselves or it was just a, a crazy situation. And obviously Romania cottoned on to this so, uh, and being the party pupils that they were, they would have two men marking Dalglish because they knew they were going to try and get the ball to him at every opportunity. Despite the somewhat unconventional approach to trying to score goals, Scotland still won 3-0. It was a, a pretty good performance. It was a fairly kind of wet and, and misty night in Glasgow from, from my memory in that as well. But you mentioned the Scotland team in 76, Alan. Certainly a very strong lineup. It wasn't too bad a decade later, we had Andy Gorham in goals, which I think must have been one of his very first appearances for mm. Scotland, March yeah. 86. I mean, I, I don't know if it was his debut, but it could have been far off it. Uh, but how about this for, for a defence? Goff, Neri, Miller and Malpass. Nice yeah. nice back four there. And Alan Hansen of Liverpool came on to replace Willie Miller. Just shows the strength and depth we had. Midfield had... Strachan, Aitken, Sunnis and Bannon in it. And up front, we had Kenny, obviously, in his 100th game. Graham Sharp. Remember Graham yeah. Sharp of Everton? Uh, a good, good player, but uh, certainly was a... I'm not sure he would normally have got a, a starting place for Scotland in, in the team of that era as well. And uh, Pat Nevin made his debut for Scotland, coming on for Gordon Strachan. So the things I remember about it, I remember, <laughs> this didn't strike me as funny at the time, but Franz Beckenbauer, when he came on to present it to Kenny, he was dressed straight, it must have been the wardrobe department from a lower low that addressed him because he had a big leather trench coat on. <laughs> I think I can picture that actually, bizarrely. Which was uh, most amusing looking back on it now. He certainly looked like he could have been uh, in that a low, a low company, but uh, Scotland as well were waiting. You talked about classic strips and, and Dave Jr. may or may not be a fan of this. The one with the stripe on the shorts, you know, the horizontal stripe on the shorts that Scotland had for a while. I presume they must have worn them in the Mexico World Cup as well. Yeah, they did, yeah. That was one of the, the classic ones there as well. So not a bad, not a bad first one. 
Yeah, uh, to have been out there as well, being I think Kenny only played two more games for Scotland, and I don't know if he played at Hamden again. So it was what kind of the, the end of an era of one of Scotland's greatest ever players. Alan, just on the point of Scotland England games as well, one of the the games that was getting a shout out in social media was the recent, more recent Scotland England game where, where Griffiths got two goals. Obviously, I think Harry Kane's ending to that game might take that out of our top five. Dave Senior might have some views and some classic Scotland-England games or England-Scotland games through the years. Yeah, I mean, that one, I mean, I'm a really big fan of uh, <clears throat> Lee Griffiths and, you know, I just knew he was going to score that second one. You know, he's just that kind of guy, isn't he? You know, he's so, such a full of confidence, isn't he? You know, brilliant, absolutely brilliant player. It was, uh, it was a shame that in, in many ways that, Kane uh, spoiled that party, you know, sort of really. Uh, although I'm English and <clears throat> I want England to win, you know, I spent most of my adult life in Scotland and supporting a, a Scottish team. And, you know, I do feel for the fans. It doesn't sort of change me why in England to win. Like, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I definitely felt for them that, that day, you know, to have it sort of just taken away from them in that sort of style, it seems it seems to happen a lot. But going back to uh, what Alan was saying about seventy six, I suppose the late sixties and uh, you know the seventies was the time. Those games were huge, were they? I mean, really were massive games. And that um, seventy six game, I was mischievously going to mention <laughs> the year before, which was which was sandwiched in between like uh, Scotland won three out of four, didn't they? And, in, in you know seventy four six and seven, and you know seventy five was almost an anomaly, really, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, goals were flying in from anybody and everybody, weren't they? Outside of Jerry Francis, got a couple. Uh, Colin uh, Colin Bell, uh, the superb Colin Bell, scored one from outside the box as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually watched those uh, the, the highlights of that game and. Like every game at Wembley, it was you could just hear that Scotland had loads of chances in that in that game, and you could hear it was just full of Scottish fans, you know, They're always well supported. That's enough mention of that game. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's funny though you mentioned there the the atmosphere there at Wembley, Yorkshire, Dave. But I think from everything that quite a few listeners have told us, the atmosphere at that Lee Griffiths double game was actually comparable. It was almost like the Hamden Roar of old. It did seem a classically Scottish finish to to take them up that high and then to to let them down again in that manner. I can still see Stuart Armstrong dallying on that ball and if he'd only just hoofed it anywhere and the you know and the Glasgow postcode would have done anything but do what he did and try that short pass and get it intercepted, then it would have been a different a different finish there as well. So the hand and roar, was that a thing then? Or is that one of these things that gets romanticised as the years roll by? Alan, as someone who's possibly encountered that more than, than the rest of us, what are your thoughts on that? What's the hand in? I think the answer is yes. Don't know. I don't think you get the same uh, sense of noise these days. I mean, the terracing makes the big difference. And again, that's something that a few people mentioned uh, on, on, on the chats, on, on social media, standing on the terracing behind one of the goals, the movement, the swaying of the crowds. I mean, 
I guess you can look back and question the safety of it, but that just brings a wave of noise. And, and I also think people were a bit anonymous in these types of situations and you're, you're, you're standing and ended up beside people you didn't know. And I just thought the whole thing was, was very different then. And it, it was an integral part of how Scotland, those were the days definitely when crowds influenced games. And if you look at the, the Scotland-England history, Scotland should not be competing based on head of population with, with, with England, but th- there's a reason we are. Yeah, you mentioned the crowd having an influence, Alan. Was that because in those days many of them were under the influence as well? <laughs> that was prior to the alcohol ban coming in following the 1980 Scottish, uh, the Old Firm Scottish Cup final. So was it possible that a few of those quarter bottles or half bottles remained unsmashed, but the people that had them got smashed? And that was yeah. why there was uh, that kind of hand and roar. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. I mean, what, what I can't remember as a 10-year-old was whether one had already been consumed before one was smashed. But uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I, the answer to that is yes as well. And it, it's, it's not going to happen again, but it was the, the atmosphere and the, these things were just, just great at the time. We were quite near the front of the, the enclosure in that England game, so it was just, it was just brilliant. We're at, at the side that Doug Leach at the end, that Douglas scored the goal as well. So just, just fantastic. Skelts, is the recent Serbia game amongst you of chosen five? It's got to be up there. It, it's absolutely got to be up there. Uh, I'm sure that in the, the full scale of Scottish games, going back over 100 years now, it might not be. But given that you know, we've, we've been starved of any real success for the last... 20 plus years that was a great moment it was it, it is a shame that we we're deprived of not being able to be there or be together uh, with other fans but at the same point I'd imagine there was living rooms throughout Scotland maybe even sentimentally a little bit through some other living rooms across the UK and maybe some kind of across the globe um, with with some Scottish uh, history involved in their families um, that there would have been a lot of happy people that night. You created maybe a, a big television moment for so many people. Um, and again, this is it's definitely Scotland's first tournament we've qualified for when you've got social media. So all these different little things that came out, you know, the, the now infamous conga uh, and all all kind of manners of celebrations and memes and, and gifts that came out from it. It's created perhaps a different type of celebration we didn't have for, let's say, qualifying for France in '98. Um, but the Serbia game, I can't even remember too much about it now. Um, it's I don't know if it's through not being at the game, or but that was uh, yeah, really, really memorable. We were perhaps fortunate that we'd had a little bit of penalty shootout practice in the lead-up to that via other, other games. But uh, the Serbia game was yeah pretty special, pretty special. Again, for me... You know, my son's 10 now. Is your son the same, Richard? Is he? Yes, he's 10 as well. You know, we've managed to see Scotland at, at tournaments, albeit not to, not during a, a great duration of our adult life, but it's really nice for those kids that perhaps feel a bit more distance now from international football, which seems to be the cool thing to do and everybody focuses on club. Um, but that's you wonder if some of that distance has been caused because we've been so poor over the last 20 years and sometimes it does help you know success makes something that bit more that bit more cool it gives it that x factor and it, 
if you're associated constantly with a team that's not qualifying for things, especially at international level, it's easy to drift to club allegiances. So I think it's great for the kids of today. Uh, at this rate, who knows? I don't know if we'll get along to any of the games this coming summer, but uh, hopefully it opens up. You know, those days, and Dave, again, will have a, a, a better memory of these recently than I do, or, or we do, I should say. When you see some flags out in the street, when you see people out in the street and just enjoying themselves, maybe going to the pub to watch a game, um, you, you see all sorts of paraphernalia. You know, newspapers do 16-page pullouts. Uh, you know, the days leading up to a game, everybody's talking about it. There quite o- quite often can be an influx of non-sports fans that get really involved, and you see a lot more of a sort of family appeal. And it's just people really wanting to to see something good happen uh, for their country. Um, and I think it brings out the best in a lot of countries. To be honest, it really does. Um, I think there was one time, about fifteen. Kind of 14, 15 years ago. I think it was a summer that I was in England for some reason at one point. It's just during a tournament. It might be in the north of England, perhaps kind of Preston area. And you see all the flags everywhere. You know, at this point, right, not saltires, um, but St George's flag everywhere. You just see people, you know, these little mini flags hanging from, from cars. Uh, people just excited about the games. And you think that's, you know, bunting up. It's, it's pretty cool. So I'm hoping that they can bring a bit of a, a feel-good factor to the country. And let's face it, we, we could really do with a bit of cheering up and something something good to get behind in the coming months. Absolutely. What really struck me as almost different about that Serbia performance was that we deserved it. We really did. We didn't just deserve it because we're Scotland and we're very unlucky and please give us a break. We deserved it because we got the best of the 90 minutes. Extra time was a bit more we were hanging on, but it wasn't an unjust final result. Obviously, penalties is... Well, I used to think it was a lottery. Now I think it's an absolutely unerring test of skill and nerve. But actually, you know, I think a neutral couldn't have complained about a result at the end of that. And I think that was a real kind of a real piece of pride as well. Because actually, when Serbia scored, it took me back to Harry Kane bringing us down from that high of the Lee Griffiths free kicks. That's exactly what it felt like. It felt like we were seconds away from a really important historic achievement. And then it got taken away. And I was just waiting for the coup de grace. I was waiting for us to get done in an extra time. And we're maybe, if we're being totally honest, we're maybe a little bit fortunate that we were going to Belgrade with no fans there. My own experience, not in Serbia, but across the border in Croatia, is that they're great people, but they're a very, very proud, patriotic bunch. And I'm pretty sure that stadium in Belgrade would have been rocking and would have been a fairly intimidating setting. But you know what? The Scotland seem to have been really... They move forward a lot. They've got a lot of character. They maybe not got as great players as they did in the past, but they've got character and they work hard and they play as a team. So who's to say we wouldn't have done it, regardless of what the the backdrop to it to it was? But yeah, I mean, when I grew up, you made a great point there, Dave Junior. When I grew up, Scotland reached every World Cup, definitely European Championships were a bit more hit and miss. But I can remember dimly not any of the games, but I can remember the '82 World Cup happening, '86 in Mexico. I watched every game I could see. Italia '90, you know, what I mean, we missed we missed out in '94 in the USA, but we made the European Championships in '92 and '96. So actually, that missing out the World Cup in '94 was, you know, that broke a long streak. It was just normal. I didn't even think about there being the idea of I mean twenty plus years of us not being at a major tournament would have seemed absolutely un- unbelievable then. And Alan, I guess you must have gone through that similar experience where Scotland just almost always made it to the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So 74, I would have been eight or nine. Uh, so I've got a few memories of the, the, the games back then. But So that's effectively the first time you're watching a World Cup. And then Scotland qualified, including that one, for six of the next seven World Cups. Not, not an awful lot of success in European Championships, but the, the World Cup just became something we did. We, we peaked at the right time. We had enough quality players that it was possible that we were going to we were going to get there. I think, um, interestingly, we, we've mentioned about the, the opening up of the USSR into a lot of different states and a lot more countries. Now, um, the, the rise of football in other continents, I don't know if that's influenced the number of countries that Europe gets qualifying, but it became one of those things that became harder and harder to qualify because things then become seeded and you get moved down the pecking order. If you look at how well Northern Ireland did to get themselves up there, and, and they really had to fight, and they almost had like a golden generation where they did that. But there was a danger if we didn't go through against Serbia. It's not as if in the good old days, yeah, wait another two or four years and we'll have another realistic chance. There, there won't be that many chances. The last-minute equaliser in Serbia, uh, yeah, that's just a kick in the guts. The ironic thing being that uh, we, we then went perfect in the penalty shootout. And that so it's almost like we did everything Scottish up until that point. And then we came to the penalty shootout and, and we confounded ourselves. And it's it, it's fantastic. And it is in our lifetimes, that game probably does deserve to, to be up there in the top five because it's it's historic. It, its impact will be f- felt. I think for quite a number of years, and will hopefully give us a, a real push on, a real boost. And yeah, let, let's see how we do in the championships. And let, let's face it, some of the games are going to be played in. We're going to be playing in Scotland as well, which is that's actually the first time major championship football has been played in Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and and we're actually going to be there. So no, brilliant to get get it in the top five. Moving on to another of our most memorable Scotland games, and actually in some ways this is a cheat because it's two Scotland games, but two separate games, but both against the same opponent, and both of them were crucial in leading us to a World Cup finals. And at least one of those cases we maybe wish we hadn't managed to get through and pass these opponents. Scotland-Wales in 1977 and Scotland-Wales in 1985. Uh, the first of those, 1977, was played at Anfield, a World Cup qualifier where we knew that a victory would put us almost over, over the top in terms of qualifying for Argentina 78. And obviously, what could go wrong there? So we were keen to get that result, get that crucial victory against Wales. Now, it's fair to say there was a controversial penalty award in, in, in that game where Joe Jordan leapt like, like a salmon. I'm fairly sure, Richard, if you had 17 TV angles as you do these days through Sky TV and such like, you will find one of them which shows that Joe Jordan didn't handle the ball. The other 16 might suggest he did, but I'm sure there'll be one that suggests uh, that uh, big Joe Jordan did not handle the ball. Oh, absolutely, Alan. As honest as the day is long, big big Joe. And it was actually David Jones, being Wales, they had more than one Jones in the team. So it was David Jones who was a somewhat nonplussed defender. I think, while I agree, Alan, that claims that Joe Jordan handled it was obviously an early example of fake news, 
that was just somewhat complicated by Joe, rather undiplomatically, kissing his hand in full view of the cameras immediately after the award, which some people might have said could have lent some suspicions to what had actually taken place. But clearly it was a definitely the right decision. It was just over 10 minutes to go as well, so it was a crucial moment, and Don Masson fired home, the penalty kept his nerve. And then Ken Elglish, who we've been talking a lot about already, popped up with a fantastic header. Yeah. Uh, I do love a good headed goal. And that was 2-0 and, and done and dusted for the first of our two historic clashes with Wales. Alan? Yeah, I remember watching that live on the TV. Um, and it just, uh, yeah, it was a home game for Wales, but they moved it to Anfield, I think. Um, but whilst it was a home game, I mean, that behind the goal we scored our two goals at was just full of Scotland fans. Uh, there, there would have been thousands there. So the, the atmosphere must have been rocking inside the stadium at that night. And yeah, perhaps Joe Jordan, what, what he did then, uh, we, we retribution may have been served in Argentina, perhaps. It may have been an early example of football karma, an action there, but it was certainly, it was indeed Alan played Anfield, that was because there'd been crowd trouble when Wales played Yugoslavia the year before at Ninian Park, and we'll come back to Ninian Park in a few minutes, but that was why the game was shifted, and they could have played it elsewhere in Wales, but I think they realised that would be a right money spinner playing Anfield, we'll get a full, full house, it's relatively accessible for Wales and it's obviously not too far since Scotland fans came down or some of them will have come up from other parts of England from London and elsewhere Scotland fans for that one so I would encourage everyone to check it out on YouTube because the the wave of humanity when Kenny Elglis's header goes in the net has to be seen to be believed it's like just a ripple that goes through and the the sort of salt tires and the lines rampant and stuff it was it was quite the moment uh, and obviously that was us Ali McLeod's army on the road to Argentina. And as I say, what could possibly go wrong? I think if Joe Jordan had realised what was going to happen, he'd have been he'd have been kissing David Jones's hand and telling the referee that it was, uh, it was himself that had, that had uh, done it there. But it was uh, quite the moment. And Ninian Park, where that game should have been played, would feature in the second of the Scotland-Wales World Cup historic matches, which was in 1985. And that was... Scotland acquired a, a draw from that one to guarantee a, a playoff place against the winners, I think, of the Oceania group. Wales at that point, probably worth mentioning, the Wales of 85 were an absolutely cracking team. With all due respect to the Wales of 77, they had uh, they had some good players, but you go through the list, Joey Jones among them, John Toshak, guys like that, Leighton Phillips, but the majority of those guys wouldn't have been household names per se. But if you look at 85, where Scotland went down for that game at Ninian Park, Wales had uh, an astonishingly strong team, I think. They had Ian Rush and, and Mark Hughes up front, so they not only had a better strike force in Scotland, they probably had the best strike force in Europe. Wales with Rush and Hughes at that point, they're a really strong team going right through it because... Wales players were at the heart of that, that Everton team, for example, had a big Welsh contingent, Neville Southall and goals, etc. So it was a really, really strong team. So Scotland in that one were 1-0 down, going on to the last 15, 20 minutes, and Jock Steen brought on David Cooper, replaced Gordon Strachan. 
And then with, I think, about 10 minutes left, there was another fairly dodgy handball decision, to be honest with you, not quite as not quite as contentious as Joe Jordan's effort. But to be honest, it looked like the kind of handballs we see awarded now. And we argue about, you know, the hand down by the, the yeah. arm by the body and all that kind of stuff. But this was 35 years ago where decisions like that really didn't happen very often. So it was a really brave and bold decision by the referee, to be honest. I'm not sure, even as a Scotland fan, looking back through all these years, that it was the right decision, to be totally honest with you. But it was given and David Cooper stepped up and with incredible, incredible poise and kept his nerve, fired it past Southall. It was Dave Phillips was the unlucky Welsh defender who it was claimed handballed when he was uh, trying to beat David Speedy to the ball. Obviously, the really significant stuff was what happened after the game, which we'll come on to. But how much can you guys remember about the actual game itself? Really just the two events, um, the, the Cooper penalty. Again, at the time of the game and the pressure involved in that was immense. And, and obviously, Jockstein, what happened with, with Jockstein, that just overtook, overtook everything in a flash. Um, absolutely. Dave Jr., I'm guessing that would probably that would have been before your time, Dave Jr., I think. So, unless, but looking back on it anyway, as a, as a, a real, probably the most, certainly the most diehard and most knowledgeable Scotland fan amongst us, Dave Jr., looking back on that, have you seen the highlights, etc.? Yeah, I watched the watched the highlights over the years. I think it probably makes its way into different highlight packages for Scotland when you think about it. You know, anybody talking about Jockstein, it's hard not to talk about the game. Talking about Scotland's qualification, or sorry, for kind of big tournaments, it comes into it. And David Cooper, you know, the amount of kind of classic clips and a couple of documentaries about his life as well. You know, they, they tend to focus on on that moment as being a standout as well. Um, so no, it's, it's probably one of those. I think you're right to include Doubleheader as a a one selection choice for the top five. I think it's it's hard not to. Absolutely. And Yorkshire Dave, looking on from that kind of neutral position there, do you remember either the game or the aftermath? Well, I do remember that game. I remember feeling a bit. Uh... For, for a while, so I thought, oh God, they've been done again. But Jockstein, there was a great deal of uh, mutual admiration between Leeds United and Celtic in the 60s, Don Levy and Jockstein. Of course, uh, Jockstein was briefly manager of Leeds United in 78, just I think he was only there for a similar amount, number of days as Brian Clough was there. I went to his first game, which was uh, against, against Man United. Um, but he did he he left to go to the Scotland job, didn't he? In 70, did he take over from uh, Alan McLeod? Yep, that's right. So he'd been married for quite a while, hadn't he? Um, if, if that's if I'm getting my dates right there, so he would have he would have taken them to the eighty two World Cup. Yep, and yeah, it was it was really was um, shocking. You know, he, he must be you know really the all time great. British manager, what he achieved with Celtic and uh, the stature of the guy in the game. He was only he was only sixty two as well. It's yeah. not it's not much of an age. I and mean, obviously, I uh, obviously did a good job at Hibs as well because as I we mentioned before about Celtic stealing everything off Hibs, we we stole our greatest ever manager from you as well. 
That, yeah, that's true. I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, if they're any good at Easter, they usually end up at Celtic Park, don't they? Players yeah. or managers. But. Absolutely. And I, it was also, as I say, I remember watching that. I was only, I remember nine watching that game. So it was always live in the telly, which was a, a thing, an, a big thing back then anyway. But, and I remember there was a Scotland played a different goalkeeper in the second half. And I don't know, Alan, if you remember the story behind that. Um, no, I don't. I... Jim Leighton, Jim Leighton started the game. So obviously Jim Leighton, terrific goalkeeper. Yeah. Half time he came off and he said, boss, I can't go back on. I've lost right. my contact lenses. Uh-huh. And he didn't have a spare set of contact lenses with him. Uh-huh. And right. neither Jock Steen, but probably more amazingly, Alex Ferguson, neither of them knew that he wore contact lenses. <laughs> so they were just discovering for the first ever time that a goalkeeper wore contact lenses didn't have them any spare sets with them at half time in a crucial World Cup qualifier. Now, Steen obviously was was a great manager, but famously you could be a ferocious guy if you got on the wrong side of him, as as all those type of managers tended to be. Alec Ferguson, no shrinking violet. I would have paid good good money to hear what their words were to Jim Leighton when he passed on that news. So Alan Ruff had to be quickly yeah, don the gloves, find his kit and, and get thrown on. And Alan Ruff reported years later that the last words Jock Steen ever said to Alan Ruff as he went out in the park were, good luck, you fat bastard. <laughs> Those would have been the days as well where presumably you were only allowed two substitutions. So it's a bit unfortunate if you're, if you're doing one for not an injury or a tactical reason. One of the other things I was going to say on the game as well, we, we've started, we've been putting quotes, football quotes up on our Twitter page, uh, quote of the day sort of thing. And um, D- David Cooper was quoted after the game, referring to the penalty kick, where he said, it wasn't so much that I picked the ball up, the other 10 just left it for me. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's on to you, pal. Yeah, I imagine it was that, that two-substitute thing as well, Alan. I'm pretty sure that would have been a direct quote from Steen and Fergie. I think they would have said, yes, this is inconvenient. Uh, we would have said to Jim Leighton, yes, Jim, this is a little bit inconvenient and, and very unfortunate that you've left us in this position. But we understand. That, yeah, but I suspect that was probably close enough to what they actually said to him. Yeah. It was probably the moment when Alec Ferguson invented the hairdryer treatment, I think, probably. But... Obviously, Alan Roth came in, very experienced as well at that point. And then they saw the game out and Cooper scored the, the penalty. But I do remember that was a bit of a, in terms of just the football in the park, it was a bit of a mugging as well. Uh, Scotland certainly weren't anywhere near as deserving as they were in 77. And obviously, and, and I can't remember the exact circumstance or timing of it, but I, obviously, Steen collapsed. I think the game was still going on when Steen collapsed. And we rushed him inside, uh, Stuart Hillis, the, the Scotland team doctor, and others. And although it was a football ground in the 80s, there was apparently all the kind of medical kit you would want to have in the circumstances that people would have, a, that somebody yeah. would have a heart attack. So it wasn't any lack of kit. It was just a massive, a massive heart attack. And by 10 o'clock, just less than half an hour after the game, the big man was gone at the age of 62. Uh, and I think a number of the players only kind of found out when they when they came back. Uh, they saw Sunis crying outside the dressing room because Sunis was famously close to Jock Steen. 
Uh, and I think they saw as soon as crying outside and they realised that obviously the news was as bad as it could possibly be. So that also meant Alec Ferguson stepped into the breach and Scotland would ultimately beat Australia 2-0 in a, in a playoff. I remember at primary school, I was being allowed to watch the away leg of that. The timing of it in Australia must have meant that it was, we were, it, the timing must have worked out for watching during a, a Scottish primary school day. I think McAvenny might have scored in the first leg. He might have scored two, I think, in the first yeah, leg at Hamden. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, and that was Alec Ferguson's caretakership over. And Scotland then, post 86, moved into the, the Andy Rocks bit either. So those matches against Wales were hugely memorable. And on the pitch, ended up with the, the results Scotland needed, but will forever be overshadowed by events in a football sense in Argentina and a far more profound, profound sense in 85 at Ninian Park. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Highland Bullpen. We're also featuring on all the usual social media channels, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search for the Highland Bullpen. On Twitter, our handle is at H-B-U-L-L-P-E-N, at H-Bullpen. At Instagram, it's Highland underscore Bullpen. And Facebook is quite simply the Highland Bullpen. We've also got our email address, highlandbullpen at gmail.com. We really appreciate those of you who've got in touch, asking questions. We are here to learn ourselves and we're here to help you guys learn as well. So feel free to contact us and follow us on any of those channels. Thank you. So there you have it. Part one of Scotland's most memorable games of the past 50 years. Don't miss part two next week, where we'll be discussing Archie Gemmell's twinkle-toed magic against Holland at the 1978 World Cup. And thanks to a certain James McFadden, we'll always have Paris. Until next time... On behalf of Bullpen Bros, Alan, Yorkshire Dave, Dave Jr. and myself, have a great week and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.